Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. everyone and welcome to this week's Squiggly Career Podcast. It's Helen, one of the co-founders of Amazing If and the host of uh, Squiggly Careers Podcast. But today I am not joined by Sarah. Instead, I'm joined by Graham Alcott. Hello, Graham. Hello. Graham is, oh, so many things. Graham is the <laughs> founder of a business called Think Productive, an author of three or four books now. The fourth one is about to come out, which so, we so, might talk about later. Yeah, yeah, so nearly at four books, yeah. and I haven't actually finished writing the first with Sarah yet, so I'm very <laughs> impressed by that. Um, speaker, also we do loads of stuff for charity. So in our term of like squiggly careers, I feel that there is a squiggly career story behind all the different things that you do. I'm definitely squiggly. Oh, this is good. This is really good. And as you know, if you're a regular listener, Sarah and I decided that this year we wanted to talk to some experts in their field, bring them onto the podcast, glean all of your insights and also hear a little bit from people who are doing what we are absolutely driven by, which is about making work better for everyone. And so I got introduced to Graham via Eleanor, someone in the team. We got talking about productivity. And I know that productivity is quite a hot topic for a lot of the people that listen to our podcast and how they can make the most out of their time at work so that work doesn't become a bit overwhelmingly unproductive and we can use our time to the best effect. I'm also a bit of a productivity keynote. So, (laughs) uh, and I, when I was reading the book, Graham mentioned something called don't fall into the trap of productivity porn. And yeah, I definitely fall into that trap. I get attracted by any kind of apps, articles, you know, all those like five things to make your life more productive. And I feel that this might be a way that I can stop, stop that and be a bit more practical and less like drawn to productivity porn. Sounds good. So when I was reading the Productivity Ninja book, one of the main things that stuck out to me was about moving away from thinking about time management to attention management. And I thought it was quite a useful thing for other people, I guess, to set everything we're going to talk into some context. What is that about? Why is attention management a more useful principle to follow than time management? Well, two things. One is I think people are very tired of time management as a concept and as a subject matter, partly because I think a lot of the best books that were written about time management were were written a long time ago. So if you think about Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and Getting Things Done, they're written a long time ago where we didn't really have the information overload that we have through technology now. So I think people have this kind of tiredness around the sort of the concept of time management. But I think there's something bigger, which is that you can be managing your time really well. But if you don't have the right level of energy and attention Mm -hmm. at certain points in the day, then there's no point in trying to manage time. It's a thing that can't be managed. So managing your attention is about saying there are times in the day where I have really strong, good attention, where I can do my best work. I call that proactive attention. Mm -hmm. There are times in the day where you're sitting at your desk and you're scrolling up and down on the email inbox and it's like the lights are on and no one's home. And I call that inactive attention. And then the bit in the middle is active attention where you can do some of the things on your to-do list, but not everything. 
So when you start to think about it in that way, then really the game becomes how can I get the most out of that proactive attention time? How can I make sure that the two to three hours mm -hmm. of that best energy, best attention that I have in the day is the stuff that I'm using, utilizing really well? How can I really do the most difficult, the most strategic, the most important parts of my work in that space? And then also not beat myself up too much if I've got some pretty low level, dull things to do in that inactive attention. So give yourself easy things to do when you don't have the best attention as well. And so I know there's an exercise for this in the book. So you kind of go through the hours in your day, work out which one of those your attention. So I'm an early bird. So I have proactive attention first thing in the morning. Yeah. And then putting, if you're going through your to-do list for the day, maybe even planning that, I guess, the night before, you would put your activities in the way you've got the right attention for those activities. Yeah, for sure. So I, what I tend to do is I will build in on post-it notes a couple of the sort of proactive attention times which again for me is in the morning as well and in the afternoon I play it much more by ear so it's yeah. much more just from my to-do list app like what am I going to focus on but I really want to make sure that like two or three things in the day that are the most precious and most important I'm scheduling for that time and I've got the best energy and attention in the morning. So that's kind of how I work it. So issue for you. <laughs> Sarah and I have different times when we have mm, proactive yeah. attention. So I'm an early bird and she's much more of a night owl. Yeah. And so I'll be like really focused, uh, irritatingly, probably about half five or six in the morning. And I'll be writing. Wow. Yeah, I know it's irritating. Uh, Sarah thinks <laughs> so too. But then I'll start messaging her with like, OK, we need to get this. Yeah. We need to do this. I've thought about it all, which she probably finds quite annoying when she looks at WhatsApp first thing in the morning. Equally, last night I was trying to have a bath and chill out and Sarah was in that mode because hers is more in the evening and was doing kind of the opposite to me so I guess in a team environment how do you manage it when people have got different productivity like hotspots? I think you have to have conversations within the team about what the ground rules are yeah. so as you were talking I was thinking there's kind of two things that are wrong that could be made right there one is you could both have blockers so you're not looking or tempted to look at WhatsApp at the times when you don't want to be. So if you're having a bath, you want to just have a blocker on there so you're not looking at all that stuff anyway. But the other thing is, should you be sending those messages? So like, mm. do you cut it out like at the, the kind of origin or at the destination, right? So you have to do one of those two things. Yeah. You know, for me, I have a blocker on my phone. So during the morning when I'm in that sort of proactive attention, want to do what Cal Newport calls deep work, mm -hmm. then for me, that's about trying to block out Instagram, WhatsApp, Outlook, you know, all those things that are on my phone that could just distract me. I try and just block those out during those periods of time. Just flight mode. Um, so I have an app called Quality Time that I use for it. So in the new version of How to Be a Productivity Ninja, there's a whole chapter called How to Stop Messing About on Your Phone. And it lists a load of these blocker apps. So the Quality Time is the one I use. There's one called Freedom. There's one called Off Time. So they're just different apps that would allow you to basically set what are generally in these apps called scheduled breaks. Yeah. So you have this break from all the stuff on your phone and in that break show me the things that I will now not have access to and then okay these are things I want access to and so you can kind of set that app by app notification by notification thing by thing oh, I didn't know about yeah, those that's there you amazing go. I'm very so, excited I feel like I've gone into productivity porn a little bit but I really <laughs> I really want to try all those things out although I think for me this is the new frontier because if you take it back to where we started which was don't manage time manage attention mm. the biggest drain on your attention right now is phones, mm. you know, apps, notifications, like that sense of addiction. And what I've been saying a lot recently is if you feel like willpower is enough to stop you checking your phone and losing time to phone, then you are so naive. 
Because what's happening is you've got all the best minds in the world sitting in Silicon Valley trying to work out how to steal more of your attention. That、mm. is their job. That is the business model of Facebook and of Instagram and all these different things, right? So, I think you have to take a strategic view of that. And I think there's kind of two or three ways around it. One, you can just say, "Well, I'm just going to completely ignore all of that and just be completely distracted all of the time." Recipe for disaster.、Mm. You can do the opposite of that, which is to say, "I'm going to purge having a smartphone at all and just have a dumb phone." And I'm not going to have any apps on my phone. I haven't thought about that. Like, and pe- people do that, and you know, digital detox, but then you know, taking it one step further and just never going back to having a smartphone. And I think that's a shame because I think there are some really valuable uses. I wouldn't have been able to get here today without yes, Google Maps because、yeah. my sense of direction is appalling. So I, so I couldn't go down that completely ditch the smartphone thing. So I think you have to find the bit in the middle, and so you need apps to be able to control that and kind of give yourself the best. Chance in the moment when things are busy to avoid those distractions and to give yourself the best kind of sense of space within your attention. I am definitely going to look up the quality time one, and then、um, for people that are listening and thinking those three things, I really want to know them. I will do a post on amazingif.com, and I'll put the links to the resources、cool. that Graham mentioned, yeah, so, you, so that people can find them. And I also really liked your point around、uh, like the destination source thing for the, where some of the work is being generated, because、yeah. actually. Me sending it to Sarah, for example, or a manager sending an email to their team when they are at their productive time is about them. I'm not helping Sarah to do that work for me. I'd be much better waiting until I know she's working in the evening and then sending it to her then and saving it. For sure, yeah, I'm a big fan of with Microsoft Outlook. I'm a big fan of the feature that they have called Work Offline,、mm-hmm. and Google Mail has a similar thing. But like, I think for me, when I've got those ideas and my mind is flowing, to be able to just like spit that into emails,、mm-hmm. but to have it turned off so that like. You know, if it's really early in the morning or late in the day, I can leave that until the next time where it's kind of acceptable to send、mm. stuff. And I think it's different. You know, these things are always easier to navigate as teams. The smaller the team is, so when there's two of you,、yep. it's much easier for you. You know, between you guys to come to something that's probably quite agreeable between the two of you. When there's like ten or fifteen or thirty of you,、mm. then you have to have slightly different, slightly bigger conversations about that. And my sense is, it's probably better in those kind of situations to be. Be much more conscious of what you're sending at those times, and sort of like making sure that you do use work offline and then send it at nine a.m. or whatever, because because then you are just spitting stuff out to lots、yeah. of people.、I、Whereas with like one person, if you know the other person's got an app turned on, then maybe it's fine to kind of send stuff whatever time you like, because you know they won't see it and that、yeah. kind of thing. I think the、uh, spitting stuff out, whether it's emails or meeting invites, happens a lot. And yeah,、um, God, I've spent like fifteen years working in big companies, and more and more as I guess. My career started in Boots when we were using Lotus Notes, and email wasn't such a predominant thing back then. Right, yeah, Going back a bit,、yeah. uh, all the way through to Microsoft, where you know we're using our products, living and breathing them every single day. I've just seen just more and more of this spitting information out, and and an expectation that everybody's consuming it. And on the point around teams and getting bigger and how you manage that, I was thinking about what are my three biggest productivity challenges, and hoping that they relate to most of the people listening. And I was thinking they are: it's my inbox, being able to manage my inbox, my diary. How on earth do I stay productive when my diary is overwhelming? Yeah. And、um, to-do lists. Okay.、Um, how do I get around to-do lists?、So、I thought maybe if we chat around each of those. Should we? Should we solve that then? Yeah. yeah let's solve. If, if we solve <laughs> that, we've got about yeah twenty minutes of our podcast left. Graham, we'll solve all. 
all that and life sorted. So on the team thing, I thought I might start with meetings. So one of the things I found when I was working, particularly in large organisations, was that I often felt like I didn't have a lot of control over my diary. Maybe that's not true, but I felt that way yeah. in that my diary was often filled with meetings that other people had expected me to be in and the more senior I got in roles the more meetings I was expected to be in and I remember I, I went away at one Christmas I think it was I don't know Christmas a year and a half ago or something like that and I thought I'm going to come back I thought I'd put a system in place and I was going to have block out time in my diary and I was going to refuse to have certain meetings and I was going to get control of the meetings beast because I wasn't being at my most productive some of them were you have a lovely table in your book about the types of meetings that you're in and a lot of the ones that I was in was low listening low doing which I think you call it the bureaucratic meeting I was in a lot of those so I was like right I'm going to take control of this put this time blocks in I told my team I was like, this is what I'm going to do for my diary. This will help me to be more effective for you. And then meeting creep happened. And I would say within two months, for two months, it was brilliant. I had time to work. But then within two months, I just lost control of it. And my diary just got consumed by all these other meetings. And Mm. I just felt that I couldn't control it. I couldn't be productive. So I guess my question is, how do you stay productive in meetings and when other people are determining, particularly in a team environment, what you should be in? And I was feeling awkward saying no to all of those meetings. Yeah. How do you take control of it if other people are taking the control away from you? So I think you actually just hit the nail on the head with that last bit there. You were struggling to say no. Mm-mm. Right. <laughs> so I think that's a huge part of this. And I think you'd obviously solved it for two months, right, where you'd start to block time out. One of the things I see quite a lot is where people will put something in their diary to block that time out, like emails or thinking time or planning time or whatever. And then someone else, they're trying to find a time in the schedule and they'll look at that and they'll go, oh, well, that's only your email time or that's only your thinking time. As if these things like are kind of superfluous or don't need to happen. And, you know, for me, thinking, so Henry Ford has this quote, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason so few engage in it. And I think, you know, when we're in a knowledge work economy, then thinking is the most valuable commodity. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who is saying, oh, it's okay, you don't need thinking time. I'm going to book this one meeting or low level meeting about one detailed thing over your ability to think strategically. I think that is crazy. Mm -hmm. And so there is a cultural thing there, too. But I think back to the sort of personal ninja ruthlessness kind of way of dealing with that. So I used to work with somebody who she would put those things in her diary planning time that kind of stuff someone would try and book over it and so what we did is instead of her writing planning she wrote project magenta (laughs) i love it so project magenta was a thing that didn't exist (laughs) but because no one knew what it was and no one wanted to feel stupid no one booked over it right and she would sometimes even set it as like a private thing and just like keep the mystery around project magenta (laughs) And then she did that with a few different things that didn't exist, but they sounded feasible. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's some, when the culture is really broken, there is some need to just cheat. And sometimes with productivity, cheating is good and it's fine. And we need to get over ourselves and try and wipe away that education that we had from when we were six and seven years old of like, we just have to play by the rules all the time. (laughs) And actually sometimes... The idea of having focus on the end result means you do have to break rules in Mm -hmm. order to make stuff happen. I think then when you think about the cultural aspect of that, I would say never feel bad about accepting a meeting that doesn't have an agenda. Mm -hmm. 
never feel bad about accepting a meeting that, you know, if you want to go one step above that, doesn't have a purpose statement. So then it's absolutely okay to say no to those because you're not valuing your time. Yeah, because I think what happens a lot is people sit at their desk and they think, I've got to work on this thing. I don't quite know what to do next. I know I'll create a meeting, right? And so what they're doing is effectively very selfish because they're booking four or five other people in. It's about the most expensive way Mm. for the company to move that forward and get to the next level because you're taking up all these people's time. I always thought if there was a clock on the wall that showed the value of the time of the people based on their salaries that were sat in the room, we'd probably have far shorter meetings. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, and and also why are meetings always an hour? It's because Outlook's default setting is an hour, you Mm. know. And so if you say, well, what about this being a 20 minute meeting or a 46 minute meeting or whatever like just being slightly unorthodox with those things can help too just to help people to think about that equation of cost versus output and yeah. you know what do we actually need to get to so i think that's all part of it and, I, and then i think modeling the change that you want to see as well so being the person who's mm. sending out really clear instructions on emails and also being the person who's trying to question how many people need to be in every meeting and does this person need to be here for the whole three hours or can they just turn up and do a guest appearance for their 15 minutes? Mm. You know, so just those kind of little aspects of, of organization. You know, if you put just a few more minutes of time into organizing those things, you save everybody else loads of time. Yeah. And then if everyone does that, hey, you know, it's a different situation. <laughs> really so different. I think that's a big part of it, it's the kind of cultural change that needs to happen. I had a conversation with a guy whose name escapes me, unfortunately, from an organisation that were doing office design a couple of months ago. And he had shared with me some really interesting research about how the design of the office affects the meetings. Mm. Um, And he talked about meeting rooms that don't have doors on. Those meetings, on average, were shorter length because people aren't discussing as much. But how do people get in? Oh, sorry. So it's just not got a door. So there's just an open doorway. Oh, I see. Right. <laughs> so okay. there's just no. There's so just... when there isn't a door to open or close, yeah. So it's then just like shorter. A... Then they're shorter. Ah. Also talked about higher desks. So basically standing up meetings. Yeah. They create a space with a higher desk, no yeah. chairs. They are shorter meetings. If you put comfy chairs in a room, the meetings on average are longer. They've done loads of like workspace design, yeah. and I just thought there's probably a lot of things that we don't even realise that are happening like in our environments that are affecting the quality of our meetings too. So maybe a little bit of thought about having the right meetings in the right spaces as well. Maybe some things could just be stand-up meetings and, and yeah, you could get sure. it done quickly. When I was at Virgin, we used to have those. We were like a startup culture. I think the stand-up meeting, a daily stand-up is literally that. But I see, I've see i seen other people do the daily stand-up sitting down. You're like, no, 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 you've gone. You've taken this and done something else Slightly completely different. Point, yeah. Slightly missed it. Okay, so I really like the idea in the diary of these kind of secret projects, very, mm. very ninja mode, secret projects in the diary. I very much believe in the cultural part of it. So actually, yeah. if you're a man, manager listening you need to almost create some permission for your team to do some of this stuff by showing them that you're doing it too for sure and the other thing i'd say is that if you look at your diary right now as you're listening to this and just scan down that have you got on their admin have you got on their planning have Mm. you got on their doing emails and you probably don't have any of those things in your calendar but yet they're all very important things that will happen over the course of the next week so even just being intentional around that can really help and just mm. having some time in there saying this is the hour in the day where I'm going to blitz email or whatever because mm. by the way if you've got that hour in there then it frees you up to not be just trapped in the inbox for the whole day as well so that really helps but like having those things in the diary can then really help you to see what resources you have left because it's a bit of a fallacy if you look at a whole day that's blank in your calendar 
you know, and you've got no meetings yeah. on that day. It's not It's blank. not that there's nothing to do, <laughs> But right? it feels like that sometimes. I, sometimes yeah. I'll put it in and I'll be like, oh, I need to fill it with meetings. Yeah, Just right. because I've sort of trained myself to think like that. And I've particularly now working for myself, I've really had to break that um, thinking pattern. But you just mentioned the word inbox. Graham, help me. My yeah, inbox, let's talk about that. My, my inbox is just, um, Sarah and I have recently taken on a virtual PA for our business. And um, I think she's probably bemused by mine and Sarah's <laughs> inbox, which basically is one giant folder that is about six years old and has thousands and thousands of emails in it. And we just use that for everything. We just operate from our inbox. Yeah. And I probably waste a lot of time searching for things. There's no order how do I, Sarah, and other people that are listening that feel that their inbox has got out of hand and their emails are out of hand, what are the top principles that we can take on board? Get your inbox to zero and then keep it there fairly regularly. So do you think just, so I, you know, I tried to do that before by highlighting all of the emails and just put them in an archive folder and starting again. But then within a month, I'm like, oh, back at about 500 unread emails. So back to the thing about cheating is okay. Yeah. Right. Oh, I love so, this rule. Um, so if you think about an inbox, so getting your inbox to zero, why is that a good thing? So I think the first thing to say is that an inbox tends to have many different uses. It's the place where new emails land. It's also the place where emails that you have read but not yet dealt with are sitting. It's the place where emails that you have read and dealt with but you're waiting for them to respond are also sitting. It's the place where a load of crap is sitting that you don't ever want to have to think about or read or deal with. And it's all jumbled up and mixed in. And so the stress of email often comes from what is not now on the first page? What have I lost because <laughs> it's gone below the fold and it's so like it's true. never to be seen again? So inbox zero really is a principle about saying let's cut out that stress. And it's not about sitting there when your inbox is at zero waiting for the next email to come in so you can whack it away like whack-a-mole or something. <laughs> so I will typically get my inbox at zero probably every day or every couple of days. If I'm traveling, it might be two I or mean, three days. Or... It might be Thursday or Friday in the week, some weeks, if I'm really kind of on the road and stuff before I get my inbox to zero. But the idea is that there'll still be emails, even within that time, that you might want to be tracking and waiting on other people to respond to. There's going to be also some emails that you have read and you need to reply to, but you can't reply yet or you don't want to reply now. So you need places for those things to go. So the system that I talk about in the books, there's a whole chapter called Ninja Email. It's really about having three processing folders. So you have three folders where the live stuff is happening. One is called action. You put all the stuff in there that is going to take longer than a couple of minutes to reply to, but you haven't replied to it yet. We have one called read, which is basically for the stuff that's... I think read happens a bit less often nowadays. It used to be for me where I would put where someone sends me a big PDF report. And I just feel like people send me less of those now. I don't know why. <laughs> um, you know, maybe I'm less important. I don't know. But just where there's chunky reading, there are no actions, but I want to read this and just get my head around it at some point. And now for me, that's typically the long newsletters from people and that kind of stuff. It's kind of useful. I want to be on top of it, but like no urgency. And then waiting is I have replied. I'm now tracking this because I care about what the response is going to be. Mm -hmm. And if someone hasn't got back to me in a couple of weeks about that, I want to see that and then sort of And then an up. archive folder for everything that you think someday, one day type thing. So then everything else beyond those three folders, you could just have one folder that is just called work or archive yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. I have about six or seven. So I have like one for Think Productive. I have one which is called Confirmations. Very, very useful when you're at the airport and your boarding pass is in uh, that folder. Yeah. And tickets are in that folder. It's kind of, you know, safe place kind of folder. I, for some reason, like to have finance in a different folder. I just do. <laughs> but, you know, if that floats your boat, do that. So it's like um, a little bit of organisation yeah. for storage, but actually the 
action of managing your inbox is in those three yeah, main folders. Yeah, so you have folders. the three processing folders and then typically have no more than 10 or 12 archive folders. Yes. And the idea of that is that you don't have to scroll up and down them and don't have any subfolders. That's the big thing, right? So people have subfolders and then they have sub subfolders and there's the, these kind of trees open up sometimes <laughs> when I coach people on this stuff. Um, and it gets very scary for people when I say, right, here are six post-it notes. Write one folder name on each of these post-it notes. Go, right? And people go, oh, <laughs> like I I'm going from having like yeah. 55 Give me to the packet of post-it six, notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so, but I think a lot of good productivity principles come from constraint and yeah. so like giving yeah. yourself real limitations is a really important thing because it helps you to realize what really matters and what the distinctions and boundaries need to be i really like the three processing folders a lovely player louisa has created lots of different folders for us but i feel like i'm just in danger of not, <laughs> of not following them those but maybe the three i could just sort of divide everything into the three uh, yeah. and, and work from there and with any new system new systems feel great when you first start using them and then they go rusty mm. within two or three weeks so that's about trust so when you have instigated something like that what you have to do is come back and just check in with it. So you have to have a little time where you do a weekly inbox review. So just to have a look at those folders, make sure you check in those folders, make sure nothing's kind of outside, out of mind and that kind of thing. And just check that you trust it and it's mm -hmm. working. And, you know, it's a relationship, right? So you have to have that kind of check-in sort of ongoing communication with it, if that makes sense. Well, and that goes back to the diary thing, doesn't it? Because you're going to have to put that time into Absolutely. your diary yeah, so, yeah, you've, exactly. so you've got it. Yeah, so so it, it I can see it all links together, Graham. It's very, very it all links together. All um, links together. The other thing about the cheating as well is that once you've got those three folders in place, what you can start to do is go, right, well, if you've got that big 500, 5,000, whatever number it is, number of emails, like selects like a cutoff point, maybe it's like two or three weeks, and basically say anything that's older than that I know there won't be actions for me to do right mm -hmm. now. And once you've got that cutoff point, just put everything that's older than that into one folder straight away. Yeah. Call it the inbox attic or whatever you <laughs> want to call it. But like, then you can just use that as a checker to say over the next month or over the next three months or six months, did I need anything that was in there ever? Yeah. And you'll find pretty quickly, there might be one or two things you want to fish out, like a couple of reports or something. But once that happens, it's just gathering dust over there. And then you can delete it when you're more comfortable. But it's yeah. just a nice way of saying, a lot of people find it really difficult, the idea of just deleting everything that's older than three weeks. I think 95... So just put it to one side and... Yeah. You can leave it. I think 95% of my inbox is probably the inbox attic that could go away. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I have tried so many variants, Wonderlist, Todoist, Beezy, Pad and Paper for creating to-do lists. And I've never heard of Beezy. What's well, Beezy? Well, I used to use Beezy. It's still going. It's not as good now. It's sort of not evolved with the times. Sorry if anyone is listening from Beezy. But I did used to really, <laughs> really like it. It had like a sort of matrix that combined to-do lists and matrix oh, at the same time. So I used to really like it. And now Sarah and I have some shared lists on Wonderlist, but then I get a bit scared of how big the list is, so I don't look at it, so that I have a pad and paper. And basically, I think I don't trust the system. And I think it's a combination probably of I don't give the system time, so I'm probably not making time for it in my diary, so that's showing up there. And I don't trust the system, so then I have multiple things going on. So, yeah, to-do lists are a mess. So generically, I was wondering if you've got any advice on that. And also, in your book, I was really drawn to the five lists. You mentioned about have five core lists, and I thought maybe that's the solution. Actually, it doesn't really matter where you put your to-do lists. Maybe you just put everything into those five lists and put the time around it. So people are probably thinking, what on earth are those five lists? But maybe we start generically on to-do lists and any advice that you've got would be helpful. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the first thing to say is, back to the productivity porn thing, mm. is people get very distracted by, what app shall I use? Yeah. And, and and the truth is, use the one that you like, Yeah. right? So there, there's definitely... What do you like? The one I use is called Nozbe. Oh, I know it, yeah. N-O-Z-B-E. Um, I think Todoist is very good as well. And, you know, there's three or four that have that same functionality. And the main functionality that I would look for is something that will allow you to list things as projects. And so you can see basically a list of your projects and then check into those and see the actions underneath those projects. And then will also allow you to view your list by categories. So by categories, I'm talking about things like at the office, out and about, a waiting list, all those kind of things Mm -hmm. that you can then slice and dice. So I can go to my my Nosby and see, right, show me all the things that I want to do when I have really strong proactive attention. Mm. I can click into that. And then I can also go, show me all my speaking projects and look under each of those and look at the actions from that. So it's like I can look at it all by a project view and also by an action where I need to be context. So that is functionality that I don't think some of the more limited apps will give you. Mm-hmm. Um, last time I looked at Wonderlist, it didn't do that. It doesn't have the ability to do that. Mm. Um, I know it's been kind of changing and updating. And people also hack these things so they'll have little, um, they'll sort of mess around with labels and other ways of yes. trying to get to that yeah. point. But I think Todoist and Nosby are really classic in the way they're designed around mm-hmm. that kind of thing to give you that project view and then sort of category context view. So I'd look for that. But also I think the other thing is find one that you really like and then stick with it. Yeah. So I think it's very tempting if you feel like it's not working to ditch the app, throw the baby out with the bathwater and then get a new app and start again. This is a productivity porn thing. And you're like nodding incessantly <laughs> as I talk about this. This is me. Um, I'm like, and I know the root of the problem is not the functionality yeah, yeah. of the app. It's my inability to stick to it and create so time So this for is it. like your relationship with your app, right? So what you wouldn't do in a relationship with another human being is like, <laughs> okay, something, some small thing isn't working here. I'm dumping you you would say, okay, we need to talk, right? Okay, yeah. So with apps, what that looks like is sitting down with it, going through it. Like I was saying with the email inbox, like earning that trust back with it again, right? And just working through what's working here, what's not working, like what am I not trusting? Which parts of this am I resisting and not looking at and why? Am I scared of something? You know, it's just like those kind oh of conversations. Oh my gosh, I need to have like to-do list therapy. I think this right. is what I need to do. <laughs> but, you know, I think it feels so much easier and more purposeful to go, right, so Nosby isn't working, so I'm going to download a brand new app and start again. Truth is, all the apps really do the same thing. So, you know, once you've got that basic level of function it's much more about the psychology than it is the technology. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think <laughs> I need to uh, go back to my app and just have a look at it. And on the five lists that you mentioned, because that really, really stuck with me. 
So you mentioned that there are the daily to-do list, the mass actions, projects, waiting for, and good ideas. And I think like, I also quite like the the distinction between each of those because yeah. I could see, okay, well, my daily to-do is what I could look at in the morning. Mass action would be like my big rock projects. Waiting for, there is a lot that's dependent on the projects and I guess that's how you could do the to-do list app. And then the ideas one's interesting because Sarah and I have so many ideas for what we want to do next with Amazing If. I worry about actually, some of them are on WhatsApp, some of them are on a Word document yeah, on OneDrive. Right. Sarah loves drawing out. Uh, she's got an A3 notebook that she brings to some of our meetings because wow. she likes to sketch them. So <laughs> Some of them are in there. I think maybe having one place where we keep all those ideas was probably uh... yeah you know and also some of them will be on your to-do list even though psychologically you're probably not committed to doing them yet right so that's part of the reason for having the good ideas park is it's a great way of not letting great ideas kind of fall away or i'm very forgetful basically right so part of for me why a good ideas park is really necessary is like just knowing that i can put it somewhere and it's going to be safe there Mm -hmm. and i can come back oh yeah that thing oh that was a rubbish idea or oh yeah that's actually pretty good or whatever and you know just having that ability to sort of chuck the idea in there then get some space from it then come back and kind of work out which ones are good but if you don't have that what often happens is people just write them on their to-do list and then your to-do list becomes really overwhelming and also becomes a list that you don't trust because you you aren't psychologically committed to all of those things so it starts to make you question whether you're committed to all the other stuff that's on your list as well so keeping what is not yet a firm commitment separate from the stuff that you really want to focus on I think that's a really important part of it as well I think that's what's happened to me I think I've had those five lists have merged into one it's become overwhelming I haven't made time for it in my diary and I'm going to listen back to this podcast quite a lot and actually make a lot of action and for me I would also say that it probably for a lot of people makes them go a bit numb when you hear somebody on a podcast say here are the five lists that you have to have it (laughs) feels like a lot right so just to sort of debunk that a little bit and break that down the waiting for list is something i don't really look at more than about once a week similarly with the good ideas park actually the master actions list for me is a thing that i will put actions in all the time but really it's only every couple of days that i'm looking at that in detail and going right these are things i'm going to kind of schedule Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing And I see that the relationship between the master actions list and a daily to-do list is like the master actions list is, you know, if I've got a day where I'm sat in the office all day, then the master actions list is like my menu. Mm. And then I get a little post-it note and my daily to-do list is the meal, right? So it's like me making my decisions. What am I going to have? And I'll put that on there. And so like for me, knowing that really like what I want to focus on for that day is going to be the stuff that's on that one post-it note means I don't have to think about that strategic level stuff. I'm not looking at projects and and even most of my master actions list for most of the day. I'm looking at like this one post-it note that just has like the four things that really matter that day or whatever. So like the great thing about a small post-it note is again, it has a constraint to it, right? So there's only so many things that you can write on a small post-it note and that allows you to focus what really matters today. And a lot of this is about just training your brain to think along that very focused route and again you know it's the same as distraction notifications on your phone it's like the distraction of having 15 things on your list for that day is going to stop you getting done the two or three things that most matter so it's like training your brain to just give you that sense of focus first thing and then that will allow you to continue that through the day i like the blend of having like the retro poster and also the app kind of that actually the the, the two can work together quite nicely yeah for sure the only other time i use um, pen and paper though which is useful to say is that um you know if you're someone who uses an app to organize all of that thinking and the projects versus the actions Mm. and all that kind of stuff then if you have lots of creative ideas it might feel like i don't want to just use an app for creative ideas so i will use pen and paper when i'm just kind of sketching things out or Mm. mind mapping like i want to be able to just 
get the ideas down as quickly as possible. And then it's like, for me, a really nice discipline is just going through that sort of the paper notes and going, right, what are the actions that from here or what are the ideas from here that I want to type up? So mm. I, feel, I just feel like pen and paper is still the best thing for creativity because yeah. it's like it's got a really simple user interface. It doesn't crash. right? It's, yeah. like, it's a very simple way of working. And for me, that's often the best thing because you don't have to think about the tool when your brain is just in that creative, in creative overdrive mode. kind of mode. So I went to our community this morning mm. and said, I'm about to go and do a podcast with Graham Alcott. Have you got any questions? And I have one question that I wanted to put to you from our community. So there was somebody, I am Laura T, who said, how do you stay productive without the looming pressure of a deadline? She mentioned like the, the 11th hour panic yeah, and yeah. she sort of needed that to make her feel productive. Is there a way people that are drawn to that need for urgency to be productive? Is there anything they can do to combat it? So ironically, I would say I really need this advice right now because I'm working on another book and uh, the deadline is... Book is number five. Book number five, wow. yeah, which is a book about meetings. <laughs> okay. I feel like the deadline pressure with books is really the, the only thing that really motivates because this book feels like a very procrastinating thing otherwise. Yeah. But with the rest of my work, I think often when you hear someone ask the question, when are you most productive? Their answer is usually when I'm on a deadline. Yeah. And people feel like the deadline is the thing that is making you productive, and it's not really. So the thing that's making you productive is the fact that the deadline forces zen-like calm. It forces you into a mode where this is the only thing that matters mm -hmm. in this moment, and I'm really sure that I'm working on the most appropriate thing, so I'm going to do that. And you're not thinking about email at that point. You're not thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. It's like it's me and this thing that I have to get done by 5 o'clock for mm. my boss right now, you know, focus, right? So the deadline forces you into that mode. And the thing is, you can get to that mode without deadlines. And what that's about is, again, about clear thinking. So one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of doing a weekly review. So you look at all of your projects, you look at that master actions list. You know, most of my big strategic thinking is done once a week in that weekly review kind of process. But what that allows me to do is get really clear with what does today need to look like? What are my big things for this week? What are the things that I'm feeling slightly scared or anxious about? Or what are the things that are going to potentially derail me mm -hmm. and having those kind of conversations with myself like so I talk about in the book that you have two modes you're simultaneously the boss and the worker yes. and it's like the worker like is just saying give me things to do and the boss is trying to define the work and say okay do this do that and often we get stressed because we're not quite sure which of those modes we're in at any one time or which mode we should be in so doing a lot of that boss thinking first, separating the thinking from the doing doing a really good concentrated piece of thinking allows you to have real clarity and then when you hit the work, it's like, okay, this, this, this. Because the boss has told you really clearly the stuff that you need to do. So I think often clear thinking is a really great way to almost like create the same kind of energy that you'd have on a deadline, the same kind of focus that you'd have on a deadline, but happily without the deadline. Without the deadline. Deadlines are stressful, right? Yeah. And I think the opposite strategy around productivity works, but only for a certain period of time. So the idea of creating lots of deadlines in your own world is a really good way of being productive for a period of time and then you burn out. And it, yes, and it's like so, a stress-inducing way of being productive. Yeah, you know, and I say to people a lot, it's like the world needs you at your best for the next 30 years, not you stressed for the next three, yes. right? And I yeah. think really, we, really nice we need to think about that, you know, our own sustainability within that when, you know, it's our job to manage our own brains and that's difficult.
I love that. That's such a nice quote, really. Yeah, that will definitely stick with me after today. So coming to the end, but we haven't talked about... I, I'm all very excited about nutrition stuff. I yeah. kind of really... I think that would be one of my squiggly career possibilities for the future would be to do something in nutrition. Oh, and cool. your fourth book, Work Fuel, is all about how we can fuel ourselves to do better work. Yep. I know we can't... We have definitely not time to talk about the entire book, but is there any key... Is there anything that you've taken away personally from that book that has changed how you're approaching your personal work fuel as a result of that book? Yeah, well, I'll backtrack slightly and say that the book came about, so it's a co-authored book Mm. with myself and Colette Hennigan. And Colette is a performance and nutrition coach. And she was actually my nutrition coach for a couple of years. And that's how the book came about, is we just got chatting about there's so many parallels here with Productivity Ninja and it just evolved into a book which is now called Work Fuel, The Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like it has that same kind of Productivity Ninja style and voice and approach, but it's about trying to make eating well when you're busy on the go just as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of key idea. So I'd kind of gone through a period where I really felt like I had very low energy. I had some depression and I was really looking for how can I, you know, instinctively, I think we all know that the stuff that you eat and all those rules that your mum told you when you were little, you know, so like make sure you drink your water and don't have too many sweets and all those things. Like, <laughs> they all make sense. The things right? that like, I tell to my get children. enough sleep, right? So all these things are useful things, but then we do neglect them at points in our lives. And I think I instinctively knew that there was more I could do around nutrition. I thought I ate fairly healthily already. But when Colette started coaching me, some really clear, quick things came about. One of them was that as a vegetarian, I wasn't eating enough protein, particularly in the mornings. If you eat protein earlier in the day, it tends to fire up your system and fires up your digestion and allows you to just get more energy out of the food that you're having. And also, I probably wasn't eating enough plant food. So Colette talks a lot about the idea of the plant slant, basically making half your plate good Mm. fruit and vegetables and the stuff that's really natural. She has this lovely phrase, Food made from plants, not food made in plants. Mm. So like ditching a lot of the fake foods and stuff that's... The five-ingredient rule is a thing in the book as well. So if you look at the back and it's full of monohydrogenated... <laughs> blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, have you ever seen one of those grow on a tree? <laughs> so it's quite simple stuff, really, you know. So um, eating stuff that is a natural product rather than an artificial product, looking at the stuff that's in terms of kind of different fruits and vegetables and and then looking at kind of proteins and... You know, whether you're a vegetarian or not, you know, mm. meats and fish and all these things have great, great abundance of nutrition in them. But there are some really counterintuitive things. So there's only a very small number of grams of protein that you can get from steak before your body's had enough. So anyone having a large steak feeling they're fueling <laughs> themselves, I mean, that's just, it, 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 there it, are many other reasons to have a large steak, I'm sure. That's but, like my husband with the, the, you know, the, he has a, the daily dose of redoxin, which is like 20,000 times your recommended daily right. amount of vitamin yeah. C. And I'm like, Gareth, mm. I'm sure you're getting rid of like the vast majority of that. It's just not... very expensive weed, yeah. basically. Is what that is. <laughs> very orange. Um, but yeah, and so um, the book, one of the key principles is eat the the rainbow so yeah. there are different nutrients in different vegetables and different foods as well so like if you're having a plate of salad that is all green then you're missing out and so having some beetroot and some red peppers or tomatoes or something like that in there will just give you a, an extra level of nutrients to just having a green plate mm-hmm. so even if you're eating what you think is healthy there's more that you can do and so you know some of those core principles we look at through the book through different sort of lenses so there's a whole chapter on how to shop And there's a whole chapter on being label savvy. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of very clever marketing 
in the food industry that will lead you down a particular path that isn't necessarily good for you. So if you're buying yogurt that has 0% fat, look at the sugar, sugar content, yeah. right? And all those things that the marketing is very good at kind of brainwashing you into certain things are good, certain things are bad. The whole thing through the 80s and 90s about using margarines and spreads that are low in monosaturates and all these things, the best thing you can eat is butter, yeah. old-fashioned butter that is you know simply made right so those kind of things feel quite counterintuitive because surely flora's got all the science right like they're the yeah. ones who invent but it's just not true this is not and, help. you know that industry is designed to create problems for them to solve i'm really bullish about this book because i'll be really honest and say that when i've given productivity ninja to people they'll generally come back oh that's a great book when i've given work fields people they're like this is life-changing like Ooh. it feels like the reaction from, and not just like friends of mine, but, you know, when I've given sort of advanced copies out to people, they're just like, oh, my God. Oh, OK. Um, and so I'm just in this real kind of just can't wait to share it with people. I think Colette's got a very long track record in terms of different degrees around nutrition and just has worked. And she's a real geek as well. Like the amount of stuff that we didn't put into the book because... She was just, what, I want to say this and I want to say that. And it was just like hundreds of things. And so we had to try and distill it and condense it down to make it accessible. I think we've succeeded with that. And if we can really condense Colette's wisdom that honestly really changed my life in terms of my own energy, yeah. then I think we're really going to do something akin to that for everybody else. So I'm really excited. I love it. I love like the multidimensional productivity. You've got tools and then we've got the kind of work for your side of it. So we have, at the end of our time, my very last question for you that we ask everyone that comes onto the podcast is about your best piece of squiggly career advice. Mm. So I just wondered if you could share your best piece of career advice with everybody. So I would say don't worry too much what everybody else thinks of you I think there's you know, there's like a study that says um, people would actually much rather have a job title rise than a pay rise mm. right mm -hmm. and so I think there is this sense of status particularly within certain industries and people get very hung up on things like job titles and all this kind of stuff and you know fancy business cards and all that I just think none of it matters mm -hmm. so that's very easy to say. I'm a big fan of, there's a book called Status Anxiety by Alan de Botton. Oh, I've heard of Alan de Botton, but not the book. Yeah, it's one of my favourite books. And it's a book about keeping up with the Joneses, basically. Yeah. And he talks a lot about that from a perspective of the kind of houses you buy and the kind of cars you drive and all that sort of stuff. And I've, you know, really tried to just question all of those narratives and just check out of the ones that I don't necessarily agree mm -hmm. with. But I think it's also true of work because I think if you spend a lot of time preening and trying to manufacture a certain image or whatever, then what you're really missing out on is you're not spending enough time doing really quality, good work. And I think for me, the work is the thing that matters most. It's the thing that for me gives me the most meaning. And I think that has to always come first. So like work first and then tell the story second is, yeah. is the kind of basic principle but like yeah just don't worry what people think I love it I love it <laughs> I uh, have a favourite quote as well about running your own race which kind of mm. aligns a little bit with that oh, one of my favourites is um, there's a comedian called Simon Munnery and he says life is not a race it's a dance Yeah. oh that's that. very nice very nice and what a, a brilliant way to end thank you so much for your time I am genuinely looking forward to listening back to this because I feel like I need to write everything down <laughs> that I couldn't write when we were talking so that's the end of this week's podcast as ever with all of our kind of guest speakers that have a book we are giving the chance for our community to 
to win a copy of the book. So the day that this podcast goes out, I will do a post on Instagram. It will be a picture of Graham yet to be taken of him <laughs> holding said book. He's now looking at me like, oh. So I'm going to get a picture of Graham holding the book. All you've got to do is give me a wave on that post on Instagram and then we will pick a winner one week later and we will send a copy of the Productivity Ninja book to you. Next week, I will be back with Sarah. So normal podcast service resumes. And they'll be also on amazingif.com. We'll do a post for this podcast. So all the things that Graham has mentioned, the link to WorkFuel, the link to all the different resources, the link to the book you just mentioned there as well about status anxiety, all on the website. But we will leave it there for this week. Thank you very much for your time, Graham. Really appreciate it. And Thank thanks you. everyone for listening. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com Let's get this dinner party started.